0: I am tired. I thought I would figure this out. I feel like I have to be perfect. Always on. Always moving.
1: Why Why is it it so so loud? loud?
0: (sighs) I desperately need a place where I can slow down. A space to call home. A home that allows me time to process. To discover who, who i meant, meant to be. Me. We were never meant to do life on our own. So I? I, I will be a part of something greater. Well, good morning for any of you who don't know me. My name's John Perrine. I am the pastor here at Community Lincoln Park. Uh, Apologies to those of you sitting in the first couple rows. It does remind me anytime I would buy a movie theater ticket in the front row and you're like, you're in it. It takes a while to adjust. Uh, I do love this projector though. This, it's great. Uh, we've had TV problems. So thank you to our amazing tech team who continues to solve every magical. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Give our tech team some love. Uh, they know who they are. They're working really hard. Um, this morning as we return to this series, we have been in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and we've been walking through with Jesus uh, this conversation that he's been having with us about what a U-plus life could be. Not just a you life, a life that's about you, but a life that is you plus God, the church, and the world, a life that is filled with flourishing. Um, As I've been preparing and thinking about this talk in particular, I want to begin with a book that I read probably a year ago. I think it was actually published in 2009, so I was a little behind. Uh, This guy, Daniel Pink, was a lawyer turned speech writer, turned now leadership expert guru, and he wrote a fascinating book called Drive, in which he talks about the surprising truth of what motivates us. This is basically Daniel Pink's premise. He believes that all of our workplaces, or at least most of our workplaces, are set up around this concept of extrinsic motivation. Extrinsic motivation. So as Pink describes it, he says, extrinsic motivation is basically the carrots and sticks method of work, right? Your company comes to you and offers you some nice carrots. Uh, Typically, they involve pay. Hopefully, you're getting paid to work, right? That's always nice. Uh, Sometimes they offer you bonuses. Sometimes they give you perks. Uh, Anyone here get free coffee at work? I do not, so uh, that's great. You're lucky, I'm glad that you have that. Uh, But then others, uh, in addition to carrots, we've also got the sticks, right? That our workplaces tend to have these restrictions, restraints, they tend to have quarterly sit-downs, maybe year-end reviews. There's typically deadlines, goals, metrics you need to hit. And the the goal or the idea for most of our workplaces is that if we put these carrots on the one hand and sticks on the other in front of an employee, then they will do the job that they need to do. But Pink, as he's pondered this, has suggested that psychology has increasingly turned to say extrinsic motivation, carrots and sticks, is not the best way to motivate somebody to do what they should be doing. Instead, he reflects on this concept of drive or intrinsic motivation, and he asks, what would it take for us to be motivated in our work simply because we want to do our work well, to the best of our abilities, and we want to give everything we have within reason to the job set in front of us? Obviously, I was fascinated to read that because who doesn't want to find themselves in a work environment where you simply love doing what you're doing. I'm sure some of us, if we went around the room, uh, maybe there were certain jobs at certain times. Maybe you're in a job right now where you get to experience this sense of joy, this sense of flow, this sense of intrinsic motivation. Uh, But as Daniel Pink was wrestling with this, he, he was suggesting that actually some workplaces over in Silicon Valley, some of the cutting-edge workplaces in New York, LA, here in Chicago, have started to realize that instead of putting all of these firm boundaries, like, hey, you have to work eight to five. You have to show up this many weeks of the year. Uh, Some workplaces have started experimenting with saying, hey, here's the job we need you to do. Here's the excellence we want you to hit. We think you know best how to do that job for yourself. And so we want you to go, and we're going to check in with you regularly, but you know how to get this job done, so whatever way you can and should get this job done, we want you to work. As I read that, I couldn't help but think about this conversation we've been having around the U-plus life and even around righteousness here in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, we've been leaning into Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 5-7, to and Jesus uh, profoundly pushes his listeners to say, what if God expects more from you than you ever thought he did? And yet, what if God actually doesn't want to control you, but wants you to be released with joy, to do, to pursue righteousness, because that's who you long to be? If this is true, if Daniel Pink's onto something, if Jesus is onto something, uh, then we might just be shifting Some of the ways we've typically done not only work, but even faith and religion, right? And so this morning, I think this final, -final, semi-final passage here in Matthew 7 is going to give us a key insight Jesus has as he's bringing all this together into what it would take for us to be the kind of people who want to be righteous. So if you have a Bible, you can feel free to open up with me to Matthew 7. We're going to be sitting in Matthew 7. I'll also have it up here on screen. I'm actually going to put the passage up now. This is Matthew 7, 1 to 5, and this one might be somewhat familiar to you. Um, As I've been saying, the the Sermon on the Mount over these last few weeks has had a number of hard-hitting teachings. Uh, If you actually even just glance back in your Bible, you'll notice that Jesus is going to say this profoundly uncomfortable statement. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yet, for those of us who want to go, oh, Jesus, okay, that's a lot, right? Like, you're really putting it out there. Jesus then uh, gives us examples and illustrations of what this kind of righteousness looks like. He, he talks not about murder, but about anger in our hearts. He talks not about adultery, but about lust. He says uh, divorce, oaths, retaliations, loving enemies, giving all that you have away, trusting God with your anxiety. These are radical postures that Jesus is upping the ante relentlessly around righteousness. Yet here in this passage, I think Jesus is finally going to land what it would take for you to actually become that kind of person. Here's what Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, It will be measured to you. It's interesting if we just pause right here. In Jesus' time, it was common, much like it is in our time today, uh, that if any legal affair had come up, maybe you had done something wrong, a neighbor, you'd stolen something, you'd violated some aspect of the law, you would be called in before a judge. And the picture Jesus uses that is kind of compelling if you think about it is he asks us, hey, if you... If you think you are worthy of sitting in the judgment seat, right? The judge is up there in our days behind that lovely podium. And I, like, I've always thought it'd be cool to sit in the tall judge chair, right? You look down on everyone. Wouldn't that be a great feeling? Uh, and yet Jesus says, if you get up in that chair, be careful because you will find yourself being judged by the same standards that you judge. He, he illustrates this even further with kind of a fun... Ancient illustration. Uh, when he talks about the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In Jesus's day, there were marketplaces, and uh, apparently, one of the things that would happen in a marketplace is that you would go to buy some goods. Like, let's say you were buying grain, and you'd say, "I want 12 pounds of grain." Well, in those days, they didn't have accurate scales, and so what would happen is your merchant would have a way to measure. Okay, here's, here's one pound, here's two pounds, here's three pounds, until they give you whatever it was you'd asked for. Now, as you could imagine, that's not exactly a foolproof system of measurement, is it? Trusting the merchant who's making money off the goods to simply sell you, like, hey, trust me, I got it, 12 pounds, it's right here, you're good to go. Uh, but what would happen then is that merchants would gain reputations either for being trustworthy, man, that merchant, when they measure it, they really give you a good measurement. Or for being non-trustworthy. Hey, that merchant, you know, he said it was 12 pounds, but I don't think he really gave us what we bought. Jesus is saying, listen, if you live your life constantly measuring out judgment to others, be careful what scale you choose to use. Because just as much as it might feel nice in the moment to cut a little off the top, it might feel nice to shortchange the person who's purchasing from you, Be careful lest when you go with your needs to either another person or to God himself, be careful lest you find this shortened measurement waiting for you. All this context sets us up then for the justly well-deserved, well-known passage that Jesus says. We actually talked about this this last summer. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is in fact a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's actually this story that I love. Whenever I've read this passage, I've been pondering this story for a couple years now. Uh, There's a psychologist in Canada who would talk about an experiment, a social experiment, he'd do with freshmen in his psychology class every year. So every year he gets these new bright-eyed 18-year-olds into his room, he's teaching them psychology, and he asks them this big sweeping question, hey, what's your dream for your life? What's your dream for your life? And then you go around the room and every one of the students would always, because 18 is a great age to be, they'd have these big dreams, right? well, I'm looking forward to uh, entering politics and changing social policies. I'm looking forward to starting a nonprofit and changing the way that our system does these things. Uh, as he's going around the room and as these dreams are getting bigger and bigger and as people are including more and more things, like, yeah, I'd love, to, I, I'd love to be successful in my career. I'd love to have lots of money. I'd love to get married. I'd love to have kids. I'd love to own a big house. He then would get to the end of the room and he'd say, okay, I have a follow-up question. How many of you make your bed in the morning? And he paused and he said, normally, you know, a couple well-to-do, the most eager students, you know, a couple of them would say like, yeah, I make my bed. Then he'd say, okay, how many of you make your bed every single day in the morning? Normally at this point, almost every hand would go down. So he then proceeded to say, for the next 30 days, I want each of you to only do one task. Just focus on one task, one change, and that change is to start each day making your bed in the morning for the next 30 days. Then come back and tell me what happens. So as they would proceed, as you can imagine, student wakes up for 30 days. They now have this small discipline. They've got to make their bed in the morning. And as the 30 days go on, he says inevitably, as the 30 days are up, he would begin to hear stories. And the funny thing is that all the stories that would come back to him normally would begin with, well, like, actually making my bed was pretty easy. <laughs> like, that wasn't very hard. It was just a couple of minutes I made it in the morning, and it kind of got me thinking. Uh, and then the stories would proceed, and he'd say, students would start telling him, you know, actually, because I was making my bed, it made me think, I, I should probably eat better. I should probably exercise a little bit more. So I, I actually have noticed the last 30 days, I've been eating and exercising better. Some students would say, you know, because I was making my bed, Uh, I've actually been sleeping way more. (laughs) Like, every night, like, it's nice to get into my bed as opposed to avoiding getting into my bed. I've been sleeping more. Some students would say, you know, I've actually been turning my homework in. My grades have gone up (laughs) over the last 30 days because it's like I made my bed, and so I thought, like, I really need to do the work that I have to do for the next day. Uh, There actually is a famous TED Talk, if any of you have seen this, by admiral william (laughs) mcraven that i think has been in conversation with this psychologist william mcraven has worked with the navy seals who of course are the most rigorous profound uh, physical training regimen that any military unit in the world has to go through and yet mcraven suggests in this ted talk that you can watch uh, that the discipline the one discipline that they start every navy seal with is not you know formation training is not deep sea diving is not all the technical skills that will be involved instead he says every navy seal begins every morning at 5 a.m when they wake up and to perfection they make their bed the exact same way every single day he says that is the genius of the navy seals that if your day begins with order then order in the rest of your life will follow what I really like about this simple illustration is inevitably all of you now are going to come talk to me about whether or not you make your beds, and some of you are feeling guilty right now, and I will be the first to confess, I don't think my bed was made this morning. So uh, yes, take this all for a grain of salt. Uh, But what I really like about it is it forces us to ask, where does change happen in our lives, right? Where, Where does change actually happen? And for so many of us, the the confusion or the temptation is that we're so tempted to think if we get our dreams right, if we go big, if we say, I'm going to become this sweeping person, then that's hopefully how change occurs. And yet so many of us realize uh, what normally happens when we go so big is we start to see all of the reasons, the obstacles that are in front of us. We start to feel bad, ashamed that we haven't done some of the goals we set ourselves out to do. And then we start looking around and we say, oh, why, why do they get to Get ahead. Like, why are they making more money than me? Why why do they seem to be a happier person than I am? And what this experiment, this discipline requires of us is that we begin with ourselves in the small, measurable ways we can take responsibility for our own lives. And from that change, we begin to see this new integrity that lets us step out back into the world and actually have a newfound responsibility with our lives. Uh, the interesting insight this psychologist says every time he does this experiment. So he says it's not just the stories that come back of how students' lives begin changing over these 30 days. And again, it's small. It's just a 30-day experiment. He says the most interesting thing to him is that uh, the effect this change has on those around the student is extraordinary. For, on the one hand, he says, almost 50% of the time, as he'll ask students about how people are interacting with them, students will observe that other roommates if they're living in a house with others, uh, their roommates will notice that some change has happened. They'll say, well, why is your bed made? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Uh, your bed's been made every day. Like, why is your room clean? And then the roommate will say, well, I've been doing this thing 30 days, making my bed every day. And that roommate inevitably will respond, wow, that, that's great. I want to do that. Like, actually, I think I'm going to make my bed. And so, inevitably, every year, this social experiment kicks off, and across the campus, houses get cleaner. Like, it's this amazing thing as college students all start making their beds. Yet, he said, about 50% of the time, the rest of the time, he's amazed that students will come back with stories about how their responsibility for themselves actually aggravates those around them. It can actually be sort of irritating, even frustrating, angering. And so students will say, you know, they go into a house, they start making their bed, and some roommates will go, hey, what are you doing? Making your bed? You, you think you're better than the rest of us? Like, I don't make my bed. I don't have time to make my bed. Who, who do you think you are making your bed when I, I don't have the time to do the thing that you're saying? That's ridiculous. That's so stupid. That won't make any difference. And he said, it's amazing to watch that this, this small step of responsibility actually ripples out and creates new opportunities both for change in others' lives, and yet also resistance. I think Jesus captures this. He says, not, don't ever offer correction to those around you, but Jesus says, begin with yourself and then see what happens out in the world. Like, the specks of sawdust are real. The people that drive you crazy are crazy-making in their own way. And yet, first, first, if you can begin, you can begin with yourself, That is what will allow you the integrity and opportunity to speak into the lives of others. If if all of this sounds interesting to you, or if all of this resonates and gets you kind of riled up, excited, like, yeah, let's go make our beds, uh, it's because this this concept, uh, which I'll go ahead and call here uh, based off of a popular book that's just been released, I'll call radical responsibility. Uh, This concept of radical responsibility is, in fact, all the rage right now. If you go around, you can find TED Talks, you can find uh, newly published books from pop psychology, positive psychology, self-help gurus, uh, psychoanalysis, neuroscientists are talking about how if you begin with responsibility for yourself, you'll be amazed to see how it ripples out across your life. Uh, this book I've thrown up is by Fleet Mall. Just give you a little bit on Fleet's bio. Before he was a revered meditation teacher, Fleet Mall served 14 years in prison for drug trafficking and during that time he embarked on a path of transformation and service that today has helped tens of thousands from inmates to hospice patients to top-level b- uh, business leaders. With radical responsibility, he invites us to experience for ourselves the life-changing journey from victim to co-creator. Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> like, I want to go on that journey. Uh, Fleet finds himself in prison spiraling down through the series of choices that were all about blame and disappointment and just sort of generalized frustration and he discovers through finding himself in prison what he must do is take responsibility for himself. Fleet stumbled into the very teachings of Jesus which I find to be a very beautiful thing. Yet if that's true the reason I maybe somewhat provocatively put Fleet up on the screen I have this question now, uh, as we've been talking about radical responsibility, that if we just were to stop here in the Sermon on the Mount, if I were to send you on your way this morning uh, with the thought that you should start making your bed, you might have to ask yourself at some point, is there any difference in what Fleet is teaching here in a book like Radical Responsibility with the way of Jesus? Like, is Jesus actually shifting anything in this teaching of responsibility? Or are we all just really trying our best to become better people? Essentially, does Jesus make any difference uh, to what someone like Fleet or others are teaching? I, of course, think the answer is yes. But to understand the difference Jesus makes, I want to take us not only from radical responsibility this morning, which Jesus does teach in the Sermon on the Mount, but I want to follow Jesus through. And in the very next passage, I think Jesus actually flips us and sort of pivots our understanding uh, that if we just walk away from this morning thinking all we should do is take responsibility for ourselves, we will miss the gift of the gospel that Jesus truly wants to bring us. So what is it that Jesus continues from here if we are first called to take responsibility for ourselves? Well, interestingly, the very next verse... Jesus is going to say, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks find, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, if I'm reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm tracking Jesus, and Jesus is telling me, like, stop pointing to others, take out the log in your own eye. I'm like, yes, I've got this. I can do this. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is going to turn and say, ask, and it will be given to you. Do you notice the shift? Like, like, asking is not actually me just doing it all on my own. Asking requires me to actually stop trying to do it on my own and turn, and, and now in relationship and dependency start to like open my hands and wait for someone else to give me that which I'm actually looking for. Um, This this verse is so straight, so powerful, it's almost unnerving, isn't it? Jesus is like, ask and it will be given to you. If you take that seriously, surely this is exciting, right? This seems pretty good that God, that Jesus, is saying to us, hey, if you ask for it, I'll give it to you. If you seek it, you're going to be able to find it. If you knock, this door is going to be open to you. Uh, Through the history of the church, you have all these interpreters going like, wait, what? Um, Like, I think this is really good. Uh, Like, is there a catch? Like, what's going on here? Um, Interestingly, as I was doing some digging on this passage, a lot of commentators think that Jesus actually is going to be referencing, sort of gesturing gently back to the at, his, uh, at this time, uh, the main man of prayer that Israel would have talked about. If you were to be walking the streets of Israel at this time and you were to sort of gesture towards something like, well, if you ask, it'll be given, uh, most people would go, oh, are you talking about Elijah? You're talking about the prophet Elijah. You see, when Elijah prayed, things happened. So famously in uh, the book of Kings, Elijah is going to be told by God to pray that the heavens will close, that it won't rain. So Elijah prays, the heavens close, and then interestingly, uh, when the time comes, uh, Elijah realizes, okay, it's time to open the heavens again. So Elijah prays. The heavens are opened. At one point, Elijah says, I'm going to pray that the fire comes down. Elijah prays, and it happens. Uh, at another point, Elijah is with a child that's died. He's going to pray, Lord, resurrect this child. The child comes back to life. I mean, you kind of sit with this story if you're wandering the streets of Israel and you say, What does it take to become that kind of person, that God just responds when I ask for it. Um, As as people in the day were wrestling with Elijah and what to make of Elijah, uh, later on in the New Testament, James, uh, the brother of Jesus, is going to say, uh, Elijah was a man just like you and I, like he was flesh and blood, and all Elijah did was persistently pray. Elijah just persistently prayed, and God responded to him. You and I have the same access to God, and this is what's So almost disorienting about this verse, Jesus is saying, if you persist in prayer, I will answer you. Yet, I would note, if there's any catch to this verse, it is that the more you sit with it and ponder it, the more you realize this is a pretty active pursuit, isn't it, on on terms of the one who is doing the asking. Like, Jesus could have just left it at, you know, speak it and it will be so, but instead Jesus is going to take asking into seeking, into knocking. There's this sense that, like, you're probably going to have to really go for it, though. You're not going to be able to just throw a request out once. Like, prayer is going to be this deepening journey closer and closer to God, where you're actually even listening in response and aligning more and more. And the more you're asking, the clearer it's going to get what God wants you to be asking for. And as you start to sync up with God, you find that God is in fact pouring out, pouring out these blessings, pouring out these gifts upon you. Now here's my last twist for this morning. Uh, If you're sitting with this uh, very bold invitation of Jesus to ask, Your heavenly father and to receive it will be given to you Uh, i can't help but think for many of us the reason why we aren't living this kind of faith the reason why we aren't receiving the miracles of elijah in our own lives is not so much because we haven't tried asking but it's probably more because we've kind of given up on asking itself for many of us, and this looks different for each of your stories, there's normally something going on if we really talk about your relationship with God that is probably holding you back from being in this posture of persistent pursuit of God in your life. Like for some of us, if we're being honest, it could just be Pride, right? For some of us, we've like worked pretty hard. Maybe you've even done this radical responsibility thing, where you've taken ownership over your life. You've put a plan in place. You've worked your goals, and you found yourself to be successful. This is great in the city. You've made it. You've got a good job. Your career's going well. Money is flowing in, and, and you hear then this this invitation of Jesus, where he's like, "Hey, ask God for it." And part of you goes, "What do I need to ask God for? Like, I can get this myself." For others of us, though, I do think it's not so much pride as much as pain that has caused us to hesitate or flinch when it comes to asking God for something. Some of us have experienced lots of pain uh, from ones whom we love, close ones. Uh, Many here have pain with our families. Many here have pain from close friendships where we've experienced betrayal. Uh, Some of us here have had deep hurt with the church itself we're leaders in the church that we had trusted, have let us down, and now that's really strained or fragmented our relationship with God. Yet some of us, some of us have, if we're really being honest, we have this posture of pain towards God himself. Like we're not sure what God's posture or heart for us really is. And so because of what's happened in our lives, we're told to ask, and it's kind of like that boss or supervisor when you're thinking about vacation time and your mind has to go through all those scenarios where you're like I, I think i deserve a week off in the summer but if i ask i've got to do it in the right way uh, i'm going to need to really set this one up to make sure you know what do i need to bring as receipts or proof that I've done a good job and we find ourselves just either stuck or distant or just not asking god for what we need if this is you this morning, uh, what I love about Jesus and what I love about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus not only anticipates this could be a spot you find yourself in, like this is is a very real experience, not just now, but what's happening in Jesus's day. Uh, But Jesus leans into this moment. He leans in with us this morning, and he wants to give you a gift as you're even leaving here today. This is what Jesus says now in the close of the passage. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, Will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a steak. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I mean, the picture is pretty simple, but its simplicity is both meant to be a little bit humorous as well as kind of intimate. Like Jesus looks and says, Hey, if you have a, a child, if a father has a son, And that son comes forward and says, Dad, I'm hungry. What what father hands that child a stone to deceive him? Stones kind of look like bread. Hands him a stone almost in mockery of the child's need. No, of course a father hands bread. Or even more dangerously, if your child comes and says, I'm hungry. What father offers a snake instead of a fish? Like a fish is good and nutritious. Fish were harder to come by in the ancient world snakes are terrifying. (laughs) I don't want a snake. Uh, What parent hands a snake to a child, Jesus says. It's almost laughable, and yet Jesus's point, if you're hearing this, and for some of us, like our pictures of our earthly fathers have been kind of broken or fragmented or challenging. Uh, Jesus actually even anticipates that. He's like, hey, earthly fathers can be evil. (laughs) Earthly fathers can fail, and yet even earthly fathers would never Take a child's genuine need and dismiss it with something so cruel and malicious. If we have such broken pictures of fathers here on earth, but even they give us glimpses of this provision and this care and this presence, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to you when you need them? I, I still struggle at times to actually trust this picture. Uh, but as I've been, you know, wrestling with this text since becoming a father myself, I was struck, just even this last week, uh, with a very practical situation that takes place regularly in my house. So for those of you who know, I have wandering around, uh, terrorizing the lobby, two <laughs> beautiful children, four-year-old daughter, two-year-old son, and uh, they're so much fun. Parenting toddlers is also so exhausting. Uh, it's constantly negotiation. Uh, it's constantly like, tears unexpectedly, and yet one of the weird struggles I didn't know about that those of you who have parented toddlers will know is that actually one of the hard things to do is get good food (laughs) into your children. Like, we have good food in our house, and yet our children don't like the good food. They like the bad food, and they always try to eat the bad food, and sometimes they eat so much bad food that they're not even hungry for the good food anymore, even if we make it for them. So almost every night, there's this struggle around dinner time that, like, I have to resist the urge to give snacks to the children to keep them appeased and at bay throughout the day uh, so that they will actually be hungry when dinner time comes for the good food that we're preparing for them. In fact, my son Hayden is obsessed right now with these small packets of Welch's fruit snack gummies, right? Some of you are still totally hooked. (laughs) That's great. And uh, with these snacks, I mean, here's the thing. Welch's says, like, real juice is in these fruit snacks. There's nothing of substance or nutrition (laughs) in these fruit snacks. And of course, that's part of the reason why my son Hayden loves them, because they are a hit of sugar, a hit of joy. Uh, He pounds them back. We feel semi-okay as parents because there's fruit in the title, and uh, it's great. So he knows now, because he's just two, he's starting to learn how to speak. He knows where the, the fruit snacks are, and he knows how to come up and ask for gummies, gummies. And so every day, at unexpected moments, He'll dart in, he'll come up to you, and he'll say, Dada, mama, gummies, gummies, like, <laughs> give me a hit of those gummies, you know? <laughs> and, and so this normally, you know, we give him gummies enough that we've probably encouraged the habit, and, like, it's a thing, and he gets it as a snack, and it's great. But just recently, I was cooking dinner this last week. Uh, I'm sitting there at the stove, and I've got this, this great meal on. Like, it's rice, it's vegetables, it's chicken. I know they, like, they love this meal. I've been cooking it for just a little bit. And the kids are running around, and I know it's going to be ready soon, but it's taking just a little bit longer than I would have liked. And all of a sudden, Hayden, my son, runs up to me, and he goes, Dad, Dad, gummies! Gummies! Like, gummies now! Like, this is a great idea! Why haven't we thought about this before? Like, just hit me up with some gummies! And as his parent, I just knew in this moment, like, if I give you gummies now, it's not going to give you what you need right? Like, you, you need a good meal. You, we are struggling to keep you hungry enough to get the good food in your stomach. If I give you these gummies now, you're not going to eat this good, delicious food I've been preparing for you. And so I look at him, and I mean, he's like so excited, so happy. He's like, we're, we're so good right now. Like, you and me, this is going to work out great. And I turn, and I'm like, Hayden, no gummies. Dinner. Like, I've got dinner coming. No gummies. And immediately, as you would expect, the dude loses his mind. Like he goes from <laughs> zero to a thousand. Uh, genuine tears have sprung from his eyes as he is wailing. He is pleading with me, Dada, gummies, gummies. And I know, I know that he wants gummies, but I also know he needs something better. Like he needs to wait. He just needs to wait a little bit longer and something better is coming. And as I've been pondering this passage, for those of us who are hurting, Around our Heavenly Father. I can't help but wonder, uh, for some of us, if there haven't been moments in our lives where we've turned to God in, in desperation. We've turned to God with something that feels so real and so present and so monumental in the moment, and we've been like, God, God, give it to me. Like, you're my, you're my Father. I need this. Like, can I have this now? And what Jesus says, so if we can, if we can pause for just a moment here, our Heavenly Father loves us. He, he knows He knows what you need. He knows what you need in order to live this life he has called you to. And he's saying, I've got something better. I've got a meal I've been preparing for you. It's going to sustain you so much more than this thing that you think you want right now. Can you trust me to be your heavenly father? Can you trust me? If I were to summarize these two pillars here in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus does invite us into radical responsibility. I think for some of us, the challenge is if our lives, if our faith are going to grow and flourish, we actually have to begin with ourselves, and we need to take small changes in our own life seriously enough that we can start to see a new direction open up. For those of us in this place, I I think this tool we've built that we're calling a U-plus conversation is a fantastic place to start. We want to help you chart what responsibility for your faith and growth looks like. In fact, the best part about this tool is that we ask you, hey, what do you want to see happen in your life? Like, what do you want to see in your relationship with God? What do you want to see when it comes to the church? But for others of us, I do think the challenge this morning is to return to a radical dependency on our Heavenly Father. To actually look at honestly what this barrier or obstacle is, whether it's our pride or our pain or something else, and to ask, do, do we really trust God? If we are taking responsibility for ourselves, do we trust God to give us good things? Do we trust God to meet all of our needs? Here's the closing verse uh, that Jesus turns to. It's kind of beautiful and it's simple. I don't even know that there's much I need to say about it. Uh, Jesus is going to end, really, this huge arc of the Sermon on the Mount by saying, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. What I love about this picture is that Jesus says, if you can take responsibility for yourself, and if you can walk in radical dependency, what you actually find is that now you've you've taken your own responsibility Belovedness, your own, own childlike status so seriously that you can resist all of these urgencies, all of these fears, all of these anxieties, and instead you can open up now in love to the world. I mean, there's a reason why the golden rule has been so enduring. It's because Jesus says that at the center of this life is actually a life that can now flow outward in love for others. Can you embrace responsibility enough to take seriously the work that's in front of you. Yet can you also embrace dependency enough that you can live open-handed and free, offering out all of your love to others around you? Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we long for the kind of faith as a community that would ask you, ask you genuinely, ask you persistently, that we would come to you not as someone who is removed and far away, but as a father that we can trust, loves their children. And Lord, for those here who are feeling stirrings, I pray this season, as we've been journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, would be a a new season of radical responsibility where they come to you. They reclaim those those tasks, those discipline, the work they need to do in pursuing you. And yet, Lord, may we not just seek self-help on its own. Lord, may we become the kind of people who open our hands and look to you as our Heavenly Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.